0: Greetings and welcome to the fourth episode of The Serpent and the Star, a podcast on theistic satanism based on the philosophy of the Star of Azazel. This time we discuss death and mortification, themes crucial to our form of spirituality. Even the Star of Azazel logo is often seen with the Latin verses fiat nox, meaning let there be night, and omnia mors posquit," death takes all. Also, the sixth point of the sevenfold basis of the Star of Azazel is worship of death. As Johannes Nefastos writes in the article about this basis, life and death are equally meaningful and important events, counterparts of the great process of transformation within which the eternal consciousness has its being. Because our modern time is so scared of death, Equilibrium can be achieved only by understanding the beauty of death and darkness. Our discussion was once again recorded in Helsinki, Finland, with Frater Nefastos, with Soror Polyhymnia joining us remotely from Canada. As usual, let us start with the agape prayer. Beloved Master, in you we trust. In your name we have joined together. Ubi enim sunt duo tres congregati, in nomine meo, ibisum in medio eorum. So be with us, Master Lucifer Christos, and send to our hearts and into our communion the Holy Spirit that fills the life with meaning. In trust, let us rise our hearts into brilliance, frater et soror, ad sacra mysteria celebranda, verily. I was thinking maybe we should start just by thinking how the view on death is different for someone who's a materialist or or if you will a profane person versus an occultist. What
1: do you think? I've always thought that it would be easier to think that everything ends in death. Uh, I find it surprising to hear that people fear that end of everything, end of life, because I've always felt that it would be so much easier if this consciousness could just cease to exist. So in case one thinks uh, as an occultist that death is just a transformation to some other kind of existence, then the whole whole life and its challenges are pretty different because they are always uh, steps to something.
2: I was actually thinking about this um, when you sent out the topic about how, as an occultist, death is kind of seen more like a, like a liminal space kind of just in transition And just that concept, how that's so different from, you know, materialism, where life and death kind of ends with, well, the heart or the brain, like on a very physical level, all matter-based. Whereas, you know, with occultists, it goes beyond matter. There's the soul, consciousness, and the thought that the consciousness extends beyond when the heart or the brain stops. So...
0: Yeah, it feels like the whole question is even more complex. Even if it's, for sure, a very complex issue. uh, For for a materialist as well, but like, if you bring to the table all that spiritual background, it's like, it's such a deep mystery.
2: For materialists, yeah, there's cycles there too right? Like the, like the whole cycle of life and um, in a very natural sense and physical sense. And with occultism, that's just kind of more applied um, metaphysically and in, in many death and rebirth cycles throughout our existence, whether it be like in, in one lifetime or multiple lifetimes.
1: I, I was just thinking that how my idea about the shortness of human life has been intensified uh, when I have been coming older myself. When I, I was young I had this thought that of course there is so much potentiality in human being, uh, we can accomplish many magical things before we die, but now when I have all these decades I have tried to change things and and noticed that uh, human advancement is pretty slow, Uh, even the this life seems so much more chained to that death and our life is so much more destined to be something I I think it's normal to become a bit cynical and uh, pessimistic in a way about human development when you are old enough
2: when do you think you reach that point of being old enough that you become really cynical
1: i think it was about 40
2: 40 or 14
1: <laughs> well both but uh, i i meant 40 uh, when i was 14 i was pessimistic that's true but i tend to at that point see death as something um, that's in a way very spiritual and distant and uh, full of possibilities, but it was for me as a human being some way distant thing. When one is 14 years old there is so much unlocked potential that we can think about many developments we can still reach here but now it it seems pretty different Uh, how about you I I think you are not past that uh, age of 40 yet but does this sound familiar
2: Um, yeah I think I'm pretty cynical (laughs) for sure I don't know at what age that cynicism hit Um, but on the other hand, too, I think weirdly joining the star of Azazel has made me even has made me more hopeful in in other weird ways. Um, it does feel like there's a tediousness with how slow that development can happen sometimes, especially if there's um, multiple energies that you're kind of reliant on to kind of help propel things forward. So that can feel sometimes cumbersome, I suppose, um, and, and then that can lend its way to cynicism pretty quickly. But I think still maybe 40 will be the magical age where I go from hopeful again somewhat to completely cynical again. I got four years, we'll see.
1: Hmm. I wish you luck. <laughs> I feel
0: somewhat in the same way that I, I mean, I have been called cynical when I was in my teens and stuff, and then I have I, I feel that I have become also more more hopeful later on. But then again, there is some kind of a cynicism in the, on the background all the time. But at least it has changed. I've been thinking about this not lately, but but I've been thinking about this quite a lot actually, and like how to remain functional with that cynicism creeping in, like, what can a human being achieve, what can I do, where, where is this whole damn world headed, and so on. It's it's hard
1: to stay very happy in the middle of it all. I just hope that there, there will come another brighter, magical age that releases this black stage, and I think there will be. Of course, people can... Uh, get attached to the temperamental faces, but at least I think that there is some very bright and beautiful in old age, for example the new possibility for spirituality and uh, getting away from those cynical thoughts. Of course, how much that cynicism calls you Mm, depends also from how much uh force you have been trying to push to your your life i i think there is much of burnout in it too
0: i'm not sure if this goes too too far from the actual topic but i i have to ask what would you say since you feel that you are also hopelessly cynical in some way how do you stay functional then me or in general, how does an occultist endure?
1: I was thinking that, of course, for an occultist, it's a little bit different because when you are profane nihilist, you can just think that everything is going to hell, everything ends, we are all going to die, and that's about it. But when you're occultist, it gets harder, it's worse because you can no longer believe that things will end. Uh, they can spiral down to new hells, and it it will not end ever. So, of course, it's also a possibility for new hopes and new ways of thinking in these new spiraling moments, but it, it also means that you can get stuck to those very literal hells. So there's always like a part of Mars attached to that Saturnal modification for an occultist. It can never be complete Saturnal blackness.
2: I often ask myself like why I chose to become an occultist Um, just because it does sometimes seem a bit like a catch-22 in the sense that what gives me purpose um, and a constant striving to be a better person holistically also damns me in that way, where it, you know, the, the suffering never ends either, in theory. Um, but that being said, I don't think I did necessarily pick occultism. I think it's just, it just is. But yeah, sometimes I take a really deep look at it and I just think, you know, I could just not believe in this stuff. I could just go back to being a teenage nihilist and maybe I'd be happier for it in some way or or just kill myself and believe it'll end there. But that's, that's not an option right now, so forever.
1: It's also both scary and a bit funny to think that maybe we are here because we were cynical people who ended killing ourselves Mm. and are now back to the beginning. So if we believe that death is not the end, but there is a cycle of reincarnation, like uh, actual occultism has to think, I think, then we are all like results of our past, both mistakes and accomplishments. And of course there must be uh, mistakes or we would already be Adepts and masters who are no longer facing these difficult questions, but only answering them
0: Something that you Polyhymnia said uh, Made me think of one of my points in my notes here Regarding how for example religions are often blamed for being just ways to escape fear of death and I've even thought about myself, that could my practice be also just that may, might I be falling in that same trap? And we can think that in like spiritual life in general, that there is, is this trap of quote-unquote easy answer to kind of uh, escape the challenge of death by focusing on some, some kind of an idea of afterlife but even if we believe in rebirth or reincarnation, we can still say that this life as it is, is unique and it's going to end in its own way and so forth. Do you have ideas on that?
2: I think that the natural tendency for people is to um, not confront death and to, to kind of lean towards that easy answer out of fear because, I mean, we don't, you know, what do we know about death? really nothing like from a materialist point of view we we don't know anything about it um even from an occultist point of view we you know we interpret what we think we know about it and we apply it to our our spiritual natures and and how we conduct ourselves but um, ultimately it's like it's the big unknown in this life so i think the tendency for our own closure sake like it all comes down to closure as we as we need we need to know um, or the tendency is we need to know. It, it's a lot harder to say, you know what, I, I don't know, and I'm okay with that.
1: And even if we take the other point of view and think about life as a one triangle and death as an inverted triangle forming this hourglass of being, then they are just reflections of each other and very death-oriented occultist or spiritualist will face that great unknown in life, because both of these are something that we can't fully define. Uh, Whether we are fearing death or life, whether we are wanting to escape either of them, we will face that great unknown. It's, It's the great mystery, and I think even for someone who has, let's say, lost one's own life and is somehow facing that bardo state of post mortem consciousness, for him or her, it's still the great unknown. What is happening to me? What am I going through? What is this? When we are doing all kinds of occult tabulations and even like more poetic descriptions for these, they they can't grasp that subjective feeling that the mind goes through when facing the mysteries of both life and death. Uh, I have used in several occasions the citation from the book of Job that says that uh, thus it is the day's work we are doing and our days are like the days of an hireling. Uh, This was the form I I took that to my Unseen Fire article, and the meaning is that as human beings, as beings who are alive right now, we have this particular moment to work for something, to reach for development and spiritual advancement and helping others. Uh, When we die we are um, cut off from this land of action, and facing something that is more subjective still, something which is uh, unable to create any more positive impulses for other people and ourselves. And that is of course true, even if we are profane people and think that nothing will follow the point of death, but also if we as occultists think that we will be born to another world that is inside of us and helping us to go through our spiritual things. In good and bad we are cut off from the rest of the world at that point for some time. And I think that's the great difference between the esotericists and exotericists in religions and New Age circles, because these latter people might think that when they die they can still affect this world as some kind of ghosts or angels or ascended beings very easily, but I I don't believe that. I, I think that death is kind of like a gateway to another kind of existence. And that's what the book of Job meant, that we are servants and we must do our work now when we live here, especially because it's not easy. It's part of the challenge. You mentioned the
0: unknown, uh, which made me think of change in general and how. Um, like any action of change can be seen linked to this uh, mystery of death and actually from that comes to mind also what you said earlier about uh, life and how how in, in these such fundamental dichotomies these Things always intertwine in the in the sense that we can't really talk about death without talking about life and God and Satan and, and all those. Basically one cannot just choose one, but like both sides are included in the same package and in each other and and those seeming dichotomies always kind of dissolve into each other.
1: I would even claim that it's the mark of true esotericism. That they are both taken at the same time in discussion, even if people claim to be interested in magical worldview and occultism, uh, if they try to choose just some part, I, I am for God and against Satan, or I am for death and against life, they fail to grasp that we are living in this great, great unity of spirit and matter, and uh, that is the core of occultism in my opinion, to understand that we can't have a personal stance in life that is absolute or all kinds of uh, personal stances are like aspects, faces, Uh, they have to be changed in that great operation or the great work that we will go through in our um, trying to become true adepts and uh, grasped the reality as it is and not only in some way that we would like to see it. Yes,
0: and coming coming back to the death is change thing, um, I might have said on this podcast that my kind of own uh, spiritual journey in a way started from Zen Buddhism and from this uh, one thing that has stuck with me among many other things is this idea of small deaths kind of happening all the time, and that that's one of their, like, explanations for, for rebirth. Also that, like, every instant we die and we are born again, and there is something useful in that, I, d- I think, um, then could it be said that then, like, this, if everything is change and everything is death in a way, then what happens to us when our body dies and, and our uh, soul is uh, scattered, then it's like, just a more intense change somehow.
2: You mentioned um, Zen Buddhism, so I don't know much about Zen Buddhism, but I have a friend who is um, a Taoist. And he talks a lot about like non attachment. And is that something that's found in Zen Buddhism as well? Like, could that be something that, you know, I think one of the questions you had asked was, um, oh, never, you asked it in the memo, you haven't asked it in the podcast yet, but was how one deals with the, the concept of death, like how, how you deal with loss and grieving. Hmm. So um, like something like non-attachment be an answer, like according to Zen Buddhism um, for kind of dealing with that loss.
1: I was thinking like from a completely different, opposite angle when I was thinking that when you mentioned small death, I was thinking about sex, and so there is this connotation of a positive, orgastic feeling about that, that metamorphosis that is smaller or greater death, and I at least wait for my own death as a kind like a sexual act of being finally released So definitely that change can be seen as something that uh, releases a great tension when we have put so much in our effort to become good enough human beings to to carry the title of an occultist it creates this great amount of stress and I, I think it's possible that death as a metamorphosis to something freer can also mean release.
0: Speaking of this non-attachment and, and grief and loss, it must come to me personally from that kind of Zen era that I've kind of tended to think that this ability to let go is very important at least for my temperament also like i could say that i come from a materialistic background and a big part of my occult journey has been the deepening of the understanding that we are more than our bodies and we can't trust our physical senses too much and all that like that is that is like where i come from And in that sense, this ability to let go has been something that I feel like I still practice, of course. And it feels that as everything does change and die in the material world all the time, this ability is very important. And we should somehow face and accept our own death and the death of those close to us. But still, we shouldn't be indifferent either towards death in general or death of any any individual being, and like, how could you balance this as an occultist or as a spiritual practitioner of any sort?
2: I, I, th- I mentioned in a previous podcast that uh, you know I had been around quite a bit of death, and um, and one of the biggest ones was like my dad's death when I was fourteen, and so I feel like I struggle a lot of the time with kind of just um, like discounting death like if you are exposed to it a lot and especially in the last few years I don't know about you guys but like I've lost a lot of friends and acquaintances over COVID just from like a oftentimes addiction it's most of the time been addiction so a lot of overdoses and suicides um, and at some point I just caught myself just being like oh you know there's another one or you know it was only a matter of time Like it, so this kind of almost like almost apathy just from repeated exposure um, to the same pattern with the same end, right? So, yeah, I think I find that I have to balance that in myself to not reach that point of indifference and to remember that there's uh, that it's sacred, that life is sacred, and that the death is sacred, and to to remember to honor that and honor that person. Because when I really think about that thought process, I'm deeply ashamed, because it's it's so tragic. But how? And I think that it is also a reflection of kind of um, a desensitivity that we see even in general within. our culture at the moment, like our our social climate, it's very easy to become desensitized to those things. And so it's a constant struggle to muster the empathy and to remind yourself to not become desensitized to things like death.
1: Our culture has failed in its attempt to deal with the problem of death in many different ways. And that's part of the uh, basis of our empathetic problems, because there is no longer sacredness in death, but we still face death in its like very macabre and uh, violent and, and meaningless forms, and that can lead to experience where our feelings of empathy are seeming fake. They have something fake in them because they are projected by this society which only claims to feel that sympathy towards people who have passed away in violence or too early or because of some very bad personal choices. Uh, It would be easier to see the meaning in death, I, I mean both the positive meaning and negative feeling, if our culture would give us some kind of instruments for that. I chose the sixth principle of our Star of Azazel to be the worship of death, because I thought that we no longer face either the positive or the negative aspects of death in our life, and especially for our well, Finnish culture where death is somehow tidied away to some places where old people die and we we never see them going through those processes of failing health and death. I think it's become too sterile and and personally I would be, I think, terrified of those physical aspects of death, uh, I would find them disturbing to be with like elderly people who are very very sick and about to die or very ill. But at least these things should be discussed. There should be some kind of cultural stance, and not only that, tidying away of things.
2: Just to kind of touch on that, um, have you mentioned like violent death. Um, I, my background is in mortuary sciences. I had done a couple years for that with schooling. And so I've um, embalmed people and I've seen quite a few dead bodies in that way. And I think that it's often very easy to kind of conflate um, suffering to the point of death with death itself. So especially in those like really violent actions like death is what happens right and it's the cause tends to be like extreme suffering or extreme stress that eventually ends in in, well ends in death Um, and I think that that really gets confused sometimes like people will some people will just equate death with suffering every single time without thinking of the nuances that you know i imagine there are some deaths that aren't painful or violent well not imagine i know for a fact that some deaths aren't violent um and so they aren't a process that ends abruptly And even witnessing, like the first body that I had seen was somebody who had died in a violent gunfight. And I remember, not the very first dead body I'd ever seen, but within the context of school. And I remember opening up the body bag and going into complete shock because of the scene that I was witnessing, which was quite gory. And how that was so much different from, you know, handling the body of somebody who had just died of a heart attack in their sleep. So I think that that element of, of suffering um, changes the whole dynamic of death and how we perceive it. It's a lot easier to think of death as this like abstract concept than it is to think about the attachment that violent a violent end adds
1: to it. For me it has always been very strange to think how it's common to think that uh, death is somehow painful or violent or disturbing itself, because I I have always thought that death is the antithesis of suffering, like of course if I would die today or tomorrow uh, probably there would be a great deal of suffering in it, but the death itself would be released from that suffering or at least the physical aspect of that suffering maybe I, I would suffer in some post-mortem state, but that's a different thing. Um, So is it intuitive for you to see why culture always seems to think, at least claims to think, that death itself is uh, violent or even unnatural somehow?
2: I think it comes down to the fear of death in a lot of cases is so since we don't really know and you hear, especially in like the media of all these like horrific things and wars and accidents and we seldom hear enough good news to kind of balance out the horrific news. So I think death becomes something that we naturally fear. And I mean, especially in the West where I would say that in the West we're completely like death phobic. We don't have a very good understanding or want to understand death. Um, even when I was in funeral directing school, uh, one of the biggest things that we were taught was like closure, the psychology of death, and how you know people should have an open casket, or they suggest having an open casket so that people could have closure. But I was thinking about that because funeral homes, even if you go on their websites, they'll say you know an open casket gives you closure, but they don't really go more in depth. So if we don't, as a culture, embrace death and in a way that we don't fear it, then how is saying, look at this person who you loved, who just died dead in this casket, what does that do beyond giving you the closure of finality? Like, oh, they are dead. How does that help you move past, like, beyond that? All it is is showing you that they actually died physically, right? So coming to peace with that, coming to terms with that, we don't, as a society, at least here in the West, support those supports support those constructs that help somebody grieve in like a a healthy way
1: Would you see it positive if we would have some kind of more physical bodily experience with our deceased like Tibetan air funerals where people are dismembered and (laughs) given to vultures or some kind of mummification and um, presenting those bodies or what do you think? Personally I find it a bit disturbing but (laughs) I think it's a partly temperamental thing.
2: I was just reading um, an article by David Metcalf about uh, the Barawan tribe in Indonesia and how they uh, participate in like a form of endocannibalism by essentially don't get grossed out by essentially like drinking the fluids like liquefying the fluids of decomposition um and and consuming it as part of the process uh, so i don't think that that is necessarily something that I would personally be okay with in my grieving process. But I can also respect that, you know, that culture got to that point of thinking that, and we could probably meet somewhere in the middle between how we (laughs) in the West here react to death and that. Like, I don't necessarily think that sky burials or anything that needs to, it doesn't need to be gruesome, but I think it's probably more in the conversations that we have in the way that we talk to our children about death and the way that we explain death, um, just being transparent about it and even talking about it more. And uh, there's like a tendency to kind of romanticize death when it is spoken about, right? You, you have a lot of those artists and I'm, I'm one of them. I like death is my favorite concept with which to art as it were, but that's not super accessible either. Like that's, that kind of art tends to be more niche. So I think that it it needs to be a whole cultural upheaval and acceptance of just death itself. So not not necessarily sky burials, but just more death acceptance, less death phobia.
1: It also seems that it's about empathy more than uh, about like what actually happens in our cultural presentations. I have known satanists and people who are very interested in this kind of black aesthetics, uh, who are very fine and eager to find beauty in those kind of macabre things, but they are still uh, far from understanding death when it comes near to themselves, or their loved ones. They can be very different things, So, so I heartily agree that it should be about discussing things and finding our like soulful connection to those things and not about changing some visual aspects, aesthetics and culture they are of secondary nature or what Bezira thinks
0: I kind of still was thinking the question that you had about, uh, like, culture and, and, and violence in death, and I'm not sure if I would see necessarily the violence, like, by default in that that way that we see death, but, uh, but definitely this death phobia, and it reminded me of what I read from uh, the Phosphorus book earlier, when writing the notes for this episode from the Necrosophia book, uh, literally, Love of Death about this, like, horrific phase of death and decay and all that. And one idea from there I I took was that that it is precisely because we are so deeply identifying ourselves with only our material selves, and, like, that's all we think we are. So that's why it appears so horrible. That's why we want to hide it. And if we just could see kind of the bigger picture, like the grief and the loss and all that, it wouldn't disappear, but it it would appear to be something larger.
1: That brings to mind that idea from the bardo scriptures from the Tibetan Book of the Dead about how when the deceased person sees these black demonic entities, black divinities, like uh, eating brains from the skull cup or doing these kind of very very scary black things one should understand that they cannot hurt him anymore uh, or they they are not about hurting him at all but it's about the projection of one's own thoughts of fear and unfamiliarity and neurosis that take their presentations as these kind of images but of course it's a bit different when we are alive and facing other people and when there is some possibility of actual wish of harm when we are facing true adversities whether physical or mental it is a kind like an objective evil to us so when we have passed from this life we should be happy that everything we experience are projections and part of our own being and they cannot be violent because they are part of ourselves of course this once again depends from that basic view that after death we are facing subjective and not an objective world perhaps people who would believe in some kind of christian heaven or uh, places like that would disagree with me here
2: I'm actually curious if I can ask, because I, I mentioned like the West's view, but I mean that's so broad. What What is a funeral like in Finland, like a typical funeral?
1: We are very Lutherans here, so most of us belong to the Lutheran Protestant Church, at least nominally, and the very reason the people often name is that they want church marriages they want church funerals and they are quite bleak empty rituals but pretty much the same for everyone there's this closed casket and sad (laughs) hymns that are played with organ or something like that it's quite gray
0: yeah I think technically cremation is more and more common nowadays even might be the most common i'm not sure but the closed casket is there in any in any case in the funerals mostly and of course there are like orthodox christians who have open caskets and from the little experience and knowledge i have of that i could say that there. Approach to the whole issue of death is a bit more healthy uh, with their emphasis on the like remembrance of death and all that, which as such is lacking from the Lutheran credo, but that's a minority anyway.
2: Do you guys have any like Baptists over there?
1: I don't think I have ever met one, so basically, no. Sure, there are, but like, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Marginal.
2: I wonder if that's like a North American thing here, but if you ever are here and there's a, a Black Baptist funeral, I've been to a couple and they are the most joyous events. There is a lot of clapping, there is a lot of singing, there are choirs, it's, it's really something, it's like a, a celebration of life, it's definitely, yeah. It's, I was, yeah, I was just thinking about that. I don't think you guys probably don't have that over there in Finland.
0: <laughs> it's
2: something that we have here and it's actually, it's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, and actually in, in my travels, I have seen something like that. Uh, in some cultures, it is, it is exactly as you said, like more like a celebration of life to the extent that, for example, in some parts of Africa, it's common that you can have the actual corpse like on a chair and people are dancing around and again maybe not my cup of tea but I can understand uh, that there is something that maybe we haven't quite understood about the whole thing.
2: Well, here we have uh, wakes as well. Um, I mean, not every culture over here, but some cultures participate in wakes. And I think like a wake is kind of a nice middle ground between what we were talking about, like endo cannibalism and then just like very um, death phobic practices. But wakes where you're with the body for several days, like the body will be, I was at a three day wake where the body was just shrouded and then people would go up and pay their respects and everybody was drinking and drunkenly go talk to the body and and you know, it's surrounded, like the body is surrounded by their favorite foods and, and things like that. So I, I've participated in things like that. And I, you know, by the third, like the first day is kind of weird, but then by the third day, like you're like, okay, let's bury, let's bury this guy, you know, like I'm sick of you at this point, That's it. A- but I, <laughs> it's fun it's like a fun a fun way to approach death
1: it's a great way to take that psychological leave that one gets tired of the celebration mm. <laughs> it's it's very pretty ingenious actually from wake came to my mind those many folkloristic finnish stories about how one is being alone awake with a dead body and it has been used for example as a form of Of uh, taking wizardly powers when one is alone with the body and faces the fear of the body and often in these old Finnish rituals there is something to be done with the body being in close contact with a dead body and with that it was thought that one gains the power of mana or the collective death energy
2: Finland is um a magical, magical place. That's yeah, that's not something that we have here.
1: It was, but I think the past hundred years have made us just some sad Lutherans here. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe there's a spark there. <laughs> still still going on. Yeah, it's it's also very
0: kind of witchcrafty, the old tradition mm. that we used to have and shamanistic of course, but yeah. Speaking of witchcraft, what you just said kind of reminds me of like the reverse phenomenon of what the uh, Tibetans traditionally do. When you, are, uh, when you speak to someone dying or I guess someone already passed and you try to help them to kind of move along in the afterlife, in the
1: Finnish tradition you want to gain something for yourself then of course in every culture there are these downward path and upward ascending path Mm. practices even in like indian practice there is this uh, have you heard about the ritual when one mounts the corpse once again alone and waits until the corpse in that particular ritual starts to fight back to you but you have to subdue the corpse and take the power from it it's pretty pretty dark and pretty insane also of course yeah i realized i maybe used the word witchcraft in a bit demeaning way but you know what i mean basically no i didn't take it that way i, I think it's like a, if one polarity is in those tamed protestant religious practices, the other polarity is in witchcraft that can be either ascending or descending witchcraft. What do
0: you think, how far should one go to this kind of death meditation in the sense of kind of facing the gruesome phase of say physical death?
1: That's one of the things that I have as being the very good aspects of the Star of Azazel that I have met people who have opposite temperament in these things and whom I can really appreciate. Uh, We just talked with brother Obnoxion, Sodales Obnoxion, who has pretty much the opposite view about the body and hence also about the bodily death than I do, And I find it invigorating in a spiritual way that uh, he can find fascination about those bodily aspects of death and other kinds of very bodily things that in my, my temperamental stance seem like gross or fearful or something that I have to fear, or if not fear, I find some repulsion instead of attraction towards them. I just had a dream where I was carrying this brother's ritualized corpse with me he had given it to me as a sacred magical object, a talisman of sorts and first I was like completely neutral with the thing that of course I can carry this neutral death talisman with me but when the dream advanced, uh, it became a nightmare, the corpse began to stink, and I felt uh, more and more horrible, even though the object itself was sacred and given in trust and love, I faced that macabre part of death, which is horrifying to myself, but I think the heart of this story is that there is always that magic, whether we are attracted to it, whether it fascinates us, or whether we fear it, that bodily aspect of death is full of energy of its own sort, it's kind of like a satanic power, and I am happy that I have friends and brethren who can appreciate this bodily aspect of death, because if I would only have friends who are like me, I would end up being a neurotic and most likely would distance myself more and more from these things, but now I understand that these two are beautiful things in their own way, so I think it is about your own temperament, if you want to go very deep to that kind of bodily meeting of death, you can of course do it and it can be sacred and holy but I don't think that it's necessary, I also think that you can get a more abstract stance towards death as long as you really try to understand it in its core and just not to escape it because death is both bodily and spiritual one can't claim that you cannot understand death if you have not spent a night with corpse. It's just simplification that comes back to one kind of temperament, just as its opposite.
2: Death meditations are um, something that I've struggled with even kind of understanding, and I've been asked that before by other brethren, just kind of what death meditations would entail and if i've done them and i think that any death meditation that i've done has just been trying to go so deep inside myself like and it's funny because when i was younger i used to lay there and imagine what it would be like to be dead like all of the time and i would even try to convince my mother that i had died which is terrible um (laughs) i got her once and when i was probably about my daughter's age i think i was nine and i remember just laying there and pretending that i was dead and then her thing and i was stopping my breathing or slowing it down and she was ready to call 911 and she was crying and then i was like boo right <laughs> and that's horrible but as <laughs> so i think about that in those moments um that fascination with death and what it might feel like to die that's kind of how i understand death meditations in that way. is like trying to to think about what it would be like. But it's impossible within this consciousness, I think, to even capture what it might be like.
1: When I was in my late teens and early 20s, I was completely fascinated with necromancy and like bone remains of people. But even in those times, I would have been terrified if I would have seen like the putrefying corpse of human being for me it's very different to have these bones that have already given their organic substance and are like clean, for me, spiritual instruments like trophies for uh, conquered life, so to say and something completely different to see flesh that's been dying and eaten by worms. I had this this very strong urge to open graves and get bones for myself to use, or not so much to use, but to just reach and, and find these, like, last remains of humanity. Uh, I, I think it seems to be quite common, at least in Finnish satanist circles, to seek this kind of personal death experience via other people's remains. So many of my friends have done something similar.
2: A question about the bones. Um, Would you feel that the method of death impacts how you feel about those skeletal remains? Like, if it was, like, if a known violent death, would there be some kind of extra negative energy attached to the remains?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One reason why I never wanted actually to have those kinds of remains is because I believe that there is somehow connected the magical substance of the deceased person. And that can almost never be completely neutral or positive kind, but there is also some kind of karmic and problematic union. It would be different, I think, in some culture, where one's connection to those remains would be more natural, but since here it would be almost a violent action to get to those bones, I I think it would create kind of like a black magic effect almost necessarily.
2: There's um, Thai amulets and they contain um, like spirits of the dead. It's actually really interesting to kind of observe um, but the amulets will sometimes be advertised with like very specific deaths, like it'll be like young woman died in car accident or uh, and i'm not sure if it's like the idea is that the spirit will then protect you from calamities in that way in this amulet but i just thought that was really interesting um i wanted to buy one but my mom forbade me in at 36 my mom forbade me to buy this amulet because we're from thailand and she said absolutely not don't bring that into your house so it's it's interesting to think about. I don't, and I don't think that I could. Like I did want to buy one, but I don't think I could actually have it in my house because I would just feel like it was just a lot of negative. Like how do, I don't know. I I couldn't ever make peace with it.
0: Mm. Now I can hear in my ears when the Satanists, who are among our listeners, listen to this and say, "Well, black magic is exactly what we need to do because we are Satanists," but. I guess here we can say that um, it's the sort of downward atmosphere that isn't really helping in
1: our work. I would say that the great difference here is about are you actually connected to these things or is it a kind of like aesthetical choice for you to just gain some personal pleasure of being dark because I can see myself having this kind of um, amulet, or skull, or something that would have the energy of someone who had been actually close to me but if it would be just someone I had never met I know from nowhere and I would just gain hold of his or her essence it would felt like great violence against that spirit, that essence it's not in my hands. I I should not hold something that doesn't belong to me.
2: That's a very good point. I think that I feel the same way. Like if it's, I think I mentioned in another podcast too, that I have a hard time, like death for me is just, I think about it all of the time. And it's probably from my experiences in my youth with death. Um, But it's impossible for me to separate reality from death. It's just, I'm always thinking about it. And I think that if like say if I, I'm i not going to go dig up my dad, but say if, if there you were able to do something like that and have like a, a finger bone or, or anything like that, I think I would be okay with that because you, know, you loved the person or knew the person or were affected by the person in life. And so for me, it would only be good energy having something like that with me. So I'll be expecting your finger post-mortem in the mail.
1: I was just going to say that uh, One of my, one could say, fantasies about the Star of Azazel would be to have like my own skull being somehow preserved in the grand lodges to be kept as an artifact there, but of course it's mostly symbolic thing but I could easily think about it as a physical thing also but to think that my skull would be on a shelf of some trophy collector Black magic market keeper. It's pretty different. But yeah, of course, my parts are yours.
0: <laughs> Maybe we could take an underlinedly more occult point of view. We have talked about these lower and higher selves quite a lot lower being our personas and material uh, manifestations and higher can be then our soul or inner master or how how would you best describe it? Um, How is death different from those kinds of different perspectives?
1: I think that we can choose our uh, world to think about death, but the question is pretty much the same. We can't think that in case we have this inner in a way immortal ego, that it would be just some kind of extension of our feeling of self, that some, some kind of bank that we can put our personality in and then it gets like immortalized. That would be like cheating the original question. It would be the same kind of mistake that uh, Christians and other believers in heaven do. I think even though I believe that there is this kind of higher manasic being, Lucifer, Christos, the master within, I must understand that that entity too from my perspective will die. Uh, For example, In the way that how my personality will cease to be as it is when I die, also that inner master's higher kind of individuality will cease to be when that presence gets reabsorbed to God or divinity or something. Uh, I mean that the basic question is about giving up our wish to be eternal as we are and when that is being taken care of only then we can start to understand these like larger spirals of uh, smaller ego and larger ego and perhaps even the greatest ego in all that is God but it's very Difficult question because, at least for me, giving up is almost impossible. I can say that I am, I am giving something up, I, I understand that this belongs to the past, but part of my mind is always grasping that past. It's extremely hard for me to get past the lost romantic relationships, for example, and so I keep thinking uh, what will I face, for example, when my parents die? Shall I keep somehow grasping them or am I able to fully understand that loss and things like that?
0: About these monastic selves and monadic selves uh, also dying came to mind uh, Stula and Sharira once again these Sanskrit terms used in Theosophy and also in in, uh, old Hindu philosophy. And from some Tantra, I remember reading that the etymology of Sharira comes from some root meaning to decay. And I started to think that in the context of sharira, because I can very easily understand, of course, the decaying of uh, Stula Sharira, our physical bodies. Well, then, okay. If this decay is kind of, it's already like by default included in also the the more subtle body of ours. Then, what is that? <laughs> it has to mean that it also somehow dies. But yeah, I think that's a good overall answer to it. That it kind of, as soon as we kind of climb those ladders of spirit, it it demands some kind of Acceptance
1: of any current state dying. Have you read Lytton's Tzanoni novel? No. I think it faces this kind of question because it depicts adepts, master magicians, uh, as like very... Mm, fascinating personalities who have all these kinds of immortal and magical abilities and are like superhuman in many aspects but that they too have to very similarly to our standard human beings to face that choice to give their lives freely and face that like deeper kind of mortality Uh, of course it's very like almost cliché thing in these adeptic depictions, but it's, I think, uh, good practice to think that would I be so willing to die if I would be actually happy and holding these magical powers? It would be so much more difficult. Of course I am ready to die because my life is suffering, but if it wouldn't be suffering, it would be a very different kind of question.
2: I think it's easy to to uh, think about the end of suffering as death, like that just seems to be where the brain goes. I know that for me suicidal ideation has been a constant theme in my life. And it's, it's just so, it's too easy to go to that place for me right like it could all just end the sun could die out and we could all just die or asteroid could hit us and how wonderful that would be but I had a a cancer scare a couple of years ago where they found spots on my liver and this was after my MS diagnosis and so I had you know been pitying myself about that and so when I had this um, cancer scare I was actually really freaked out and I had this moment of like mortality where I was like I don't actually want to die. So I always try to bring myself back to that point because it's so easy for that pattern to reinstate itself in my head where I'm like, I feel awful. I want to die. I just want to kill myself. But nope. When it's actually maybe happening, I, I don't I think that's always the case.
1: I actually use that same thing as a practice. Almost every day I think that Now I feel bad, but if I would have just received the word that that I am going to die tomorrow, for sure, how would I feel about living this day? Because it helps to get past all those neuroses and focus to the, well, it feels wrong to say the positive side of things, but like uh, energetic life side of things.
0: These discussions and, and the higher and the lower self and also their, their intertwining and, and how this kind of letting go <laughs> in a way never ends brings to mind, again, our SOA Tuesday, Celestial Hymn, um, this part where it's in Latin and it says Quoniamo es et redemisti in insanguine tuo, meaning the God who was killed and redeemed us with his blood. And in the commentary, it said that the God who was killed can be seen as God uh, being born into the physical world. And then the redeeming us with his blood then means that uh, with his sacrifice he raised the human personality from the mechanical repetition of unconsciousness. And how these, these different selves kind of meet here. My higher self can be seen dying. And that is uh, like giving birth to what my lower self is. And then there happens kind of another twist, another sacrifice. And then we are redeemed. If I think of my higher self uh, in a karmic way, in a way, um, I do all kinds of stupid things here on earth. And then my higher self in one way or another kind of cleans my mess. <laughs> mm. uh, you, you can see that in a way as like redeeming of sins meaning that this higher self is still at the same time me and that gives a new kind of an angle to the whole like the question what is to redeem something and Mm -hmm. and that all happens in me I cannot kind of expect some outer master to do it but at the same time I am the redeemer and I am the one being redeemed and then how does this like relate to death when at least it can like give new light to the whole whole setting of life and death and like that is as we sometimes talk of christ in me or, or lucifer christos the master in me in action and that's in a way one means to kind of transcend what we have thought death is for example
1: Also it made me to think that when we as occultists think about death we can fall to these kind of snares to speak always about like metamorphosis and transformation and it doesn't ultimately mean much if death is only some kind of transformation, but if we take the another aspect of death as inertia, something being closed to very small place, almost unable to do anything, I think it's apt way to see this redeeming process. Like this redeemer, Christ, Lucifer, Christos, or Avalokitesvara or Buddha, is in a coffin of our personality, like imprisoned by Saturnine death aspect. So it's death as lack of movement, lack of freedom. Lack of energy, being close to grave.
0: Which somehow also makes me think of uh, time. And it may be too a vast subject to go into. But at least it can be mentioned that, again, the whole idea of life and death changes if we think of it not from a linear time perspective. Like how these are not, like if this happens and then you die and then you become something else. But how that is true. But at the same time, esoterically, we can see that those also like coexist, so to say, at the same time.
2: When we were speaking of redeemers and the uh, theme of redemption, it's, you know, like our fifth point. Like every man is his own savior. That's the thing that I'm constantly, when people are asking me, you know, why theistic Satanism? That's the point I constantly return to. Because if you're not going to save yourself, right, like who who is? So I think that's very important to constantly perpetuate that life-death-rebirth cycle uh, in an act of, of saving yourself.
0: Should we move on to mortification?
1: I was actually just going to say that that sounds like a great work is in a way a big uh, cycle of mortification in itself, because if we are redeeming ourselves as satanists we are practically decaying from our old being, our petty being, and like very very slowly becoming something that is hidden inside this bodily casket, some, something more glorious, something more real. And it it can't be done unless we let those petty feelings die.
0: Yeah, actually I remember thinking sometime earlier that, oh shit, I haven't had this full like mortification process yet and I have to now get it in order and and what not and then I thought that okay these mortification periods come come in cycle and of course they do as things intensify from time to time but then I what I realized later on was that it's not really about <laughs> like going through a phase of mortification but exactly as you said the whole work is mortification and like mm-hmm. that that is a deepening process more than okay now I have done this I can move on to something else but mm-hmm. that's like the whole thing pretty much at least that's one way to see it. And what is mortification then? Okay, um, I would argue that uh, it's a pretty universal idea and ideal, again, um, that you can find in pretty much all the spiritual paths worth following, to put it bluntly. The idea of dying while living and then being born anew or born from above as it's for example said in the gospel of John <clears throat> but uh, like if if you had to try to summarize it somehow what would you say mortification is and what is what is its aim and why is it so important
1: i was thinking that answer to that has been the very point of our our discussion all the time so i think mortification is about accepting death mm. in, in all its ways but it can take so many different points of view that our temperaments give to it so and, and of course we must uh, accept also parts of those that are very unnatural to us when we feel that there is some kind of truthfulness also in them. Uh, I think it's also about humility because we as satanists can be quite proud and hebric human beings, and mortification is about letting those things go, so not only understanding that this flesh, this body will rot, but also that my ingenious mind will also rot, and it is very mortal and very small compared to real spiritual hates of adept masters and divinities and the great unity of being so I think mortification is understandable to those human beings who in their hearts already understand that I am something else I I am something more and thus this envelope, this shari'ra or eggshell that people see when they look at me and and read me and uh, think about me, it's, it's something that is about to fall off sooner or later, it, it, it must change, it's good that it changes and I think the process of not being the egg anymore and becoming the bird is about uh, a great part of becoming an adeptic being.
2: Do either of you have any thoughts about like passive mortification versus like an active, deliberate mortification, like seeing something within yourself that needs to be essentially expelled and effectively like killed? out of yourself to kind of advance things like so say um for truthfulness right you would have to um like kill the tendency to lie within you and that would be like a deliberate act but then not of course like finding that balance there too because one can be too honest as well but would you consider that type of action like a, like an active form of mini mortification.
0: You said kill. Um, I remember that um, I have had like by default positive attitude to like killing as a symbol in spiritual work. But I realized that more and more, it sounds like, well, forcing first of all, but also something maybe instrumental in the sense that, okay, you see there's something you want to change, then you kind of tackle that as if like trying to cure symptoms instead of the actual um, what's causing those symptoms. So, uh, I'm not sure if I'm like a white aspect person at the moment, uh, but uh, <laughs> I can see that white kind of tendency in me that I tend to think that if my focus is right, if I actually strive and do this work consistently then these kind of more detailed things kind of start to heal if that's the right word again I don't know but by themselves in in the sense that I don't of course I have to like if I see that I do something wrong I can just like let it be like that but killing certain things you don't like about yourself like shouldn't be the first focus I guess
1: I have thought about this a lot because uh, I have to struggled so much about uh, all these practices about killing oneself, killing one's bad habits and supposed negative aspects, because it's the usual language in the sacred books and occult books and so on, but I think that the problem is in that we no longer have those guru systems, those systems where one has an actual teacher because I believe that it's the teacher who helps the student to applicate those teachings. The teachings themselves are pretty harsh, they are the red aspect so to say but the teacher is the white aspect so he or she helps the student to understand that yes, this is the path you are going to take, this, this is the actual teaching and it's correct, but this, on the other hand, is how we are going to do it and it works with love and taking yourself into consideration of course it doesn't have to be this way, there can be harsh <laughs> gurus also but uh, as a large big picture, I think we would need interpretation help with these old tantric and magical and sacred texts, to see what is the line between us doing harm to ourselves and our process by that spiritual violence and where that so-called killing is actually beneficent.
2: I think that says a lot about my own temperament. That I go to the place of like total self punishment every time. Like this is problematic. This needs to die. But I think historically I'm pretty hard on myself that way. So it really isn't surprising. So I appreciate your guys' perspectives on that for sure.
0: Yeah, well, likewise, I'm exactly the same, and it's not.
1: It's not like something I'm. I'm good at, but. <laughs> for me, the challenge seems to be that even though I would, like to. Uh, treat myself with (laughs) silken gloves, so to say, there is this very Luciferian, Satanist subconscious, or maybe subconscious is a a bit wrong word, but there's something inside of me, some like Satanist magnetism that tries to invert the things to violence, some kind of inverted pull, and it has been very, very interesting and also horrible to find those depths of our soul that tie us to those like also negative mortifications also in the faces, I would see it no longer necessary but we have that uh, devil inside tied to our, our being so even if we would stop trying to judge ourselves so harshly it's possible that the process itself is not ready to go as quickly at least in my life it doesn't be
0: yeah and i guess that's white ideal like focusing on the core whatever it it then is uh, until that is reached you must like tackle (laughs) more specific things more of course like that's also like part of the process that it's a, again, climbing a ladder kind of thing.
2: I know for myself, I think that the tendency to want to kind of attack is just an attempt to make any kind of movement that um, Like even chaos feels more comfortable than being just uncomfortable. Like the state of being uncomfortable in something when you're transitioning or, you know, like for the past um, several months, I've been in a state of extreme discomfort. And I know that it's been a constant struggle to try and think my brain always goes to what's what am I doing? What's wrong with what I'm doing right now? What needs to die within myself? But I think at some point the person has to just let the processes happen and unfold and accept it as a part of the larger work, even if it's just uncomfortable. And that sucks.
1: <laughs> also one thing uh, that's not too much discussed, I think it it would have to be discussed more in also the spiritual occult circles, is the human tendency to become masochistic. Uh, I, I see it quite often in the occult pupils, that we have this kind of psychological snares in us that make us love a kind like downward pull, and it can be seen also in mortification processes, especially in the black aspect pupils, that we think that we are punishing ourselves to reach for something greater, but actually we are punishing ourselves to get psychological masochistic pleasure. And it's not spiritual at all. Uh, I'm glad that we are step by step going further from the old Christian and Judeo-Christian problems in this, because as you most likely know, in Christian mysticism the masochistic tendencies were glorified, martyrs were thought about as saints, and and so on. If you die of your self-tortures, you become like angelic being, and that's of course the opposite of the truth. If you torture yourself to death you become a demonic being who is also doing great spiritual harm to other beings. But I say that we as occultists should always think that am I punishing myself for some like perverted pleasure or because I really am trying to reach for something that would make me better and help better the other other human beings or other spiritual beings or the whole.
2: Which I think then opens the conversation up to kind of like asceticism, like how do you guys see fasting and things like that, the deliberately withholding aspects, do you find that, like how does that fit in for you?
1: In Argaritim I took a quotation from, I think it was Bhagavad Gita, Yeah, where Vishnu or Krishna says that those who are torturing the elements in themselves, they have the demonic nature. Uh, Meaning that those yogis who fast too much, who make other kinds of like physical punishments for themselves to reach spirit are not actually spiritual, but Azuric, demonic beings. And that doesn't necessarily mean in this context only the negative thing, because in Hindu scriptures demons are like higher beings than humans in some ways. It can be great to become empowered by this kind of Azuric, demonic dynamism, especially if we are in some way phlegmatic in nature, somehow more than necessary tied to our bodily being but we should not think about it as a spiritual practice, it's more like a mental neutral practice and I think that's uh, one good way to think about fasting and being physically awake for longer periods or uh, Doing sports in in great measures—it's not good or bad. It's just a neutral instrument.
0: I've never thought of fasting as something demonic, but <laughs> now that you put it like that, it—yeah, I can see that. I have uh, had very positive uh, experiences with with fasting, and precisely because of that kind of focus uh, shifting that you like emphasizedly try not to focus on material things uh like you eat as much as you kind of need to be uh, like content but you don't do it in excess or or something like that and if i've had some a few weeks fasting usually they are not very harsh and it doesn't have to be like ascetic Uh, there might be time for that too but like usually it doesn't require That harsh measures to like orientate right, and and usually I've I haven't done it actually in some time, but but I've had very very good uh, experiences with with those kinds of things. But then again, the kind of white aspect tone in me would like to add that again, here I could see a kind of a outer manifestation of something that we can also kind of ideally do less visibly. Uh, I mean, actually, it might be the Azazel in the prayer book, even when it says the prayer to Azazel is basically a fasting Mm. hymn, so to say. And in that, um, it said in the commentary part that our whole life should be in a way like fasting, but it doesn't mean that we should be like materialistically ascetic all the time but but our focus should be right that's basically as I see it.
1: Yeah it was originally a prayer made to these fasting times before major rituals and only afterwards I understood that why not use this all the time because it tries to give the mind that focus it should have all the time and no outer process is is demanded With a prayer. Mm, I I think that fasting should be taken as a rule, similar practice as with puzzle-making of sorts, uh, as a focus of putting our mental energy in, because especially nowadays in our superficial, surficial culture, when we all have this Stresses how we should look like and and so on. Letting go of eating, taking less food can also be a form of very superficially making yourself more beautiful and and putting more focus into that. Of course, I don't say that it's like that to all people, but it's it's so close to the cultural wounded points that for most people I would uh, instead suggest some kind of like more mental focusing than what's done with food or even sports, even though it's very good to have a like healthy temple for the spirit, it's too easy to start focusing too much to that outer side, so at least there should be some kind of fully abstracted fasting process with these alter fasting processes
0: yeah that might, might be the big mistake of of like western monastic traditions for example that they have only this one one thing basically yeah. and mm-hmm. the different stages of that like deepening fastings and and so on but it's like pretty ascetic, ascetic all the way for all temperaments and
1: yeah although If we think about monasteries of the Middle Ages and so on, they they had this cultural emphasis also, like how they copied books, art pieces and so on, so maybe we see it one-sidedly also. And nowadays monasteries of course are more about fasting and less about making art or copying esoteric books.
0: speaking of uh, fasting and the likes, um, I heard in some like Catholic context and probably elsewhere as well people can speak of uh, like smaller mortifications exactly like everyday everyday life things like abstaining from something little not not taking that little like treat you know, that can be a little mortification, for example, giving up a certain food or, or drink or habit or whatever, uh, but then also there is this deeper process which John of the Cross has, for example, called Dark Night of the Soul, which is like mortification in a deeper sense, and in his uh, book he basically talks about how how a spiritual aspirant is uh, purified of his mistakes step by step by going through darkness and going through spiritually dry times and all kinds of hardships and then through that darkness uh, he eventually comes out of as something new basically. And you spoke of humility, Johannes, earlier so that gives me a good reason to quote St. Francis here, also a Catholic mystic, from his uh, Canticle of the Sun, which is a very beautiful prayer, by the way. Um, In the end it says that, braced be you, my Lord, through sister death, from whom no one living can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin! Blessed are they, she finds, doing your will no second death can do them harm. Praise and bless my Lord and give him thanks, and serve him with great humility." This is thoroughly Christian lingo, of course, but but that's a good summary of of this process, I would say. Like, for example, the part that no second death can do them harm, because
1: well, the whole idea of death has kind of changed. And also speaking about different deaths is quite esoteric thought, not so much exoteric profane Christianity since the Christian idea of the second death comes from revelation, and the revelation itself is quite alchemical, kabbalistic, occultist scripture, we can understand how this kind of like inner death, soul's death, is something that is important to us as spiritualists and occultists and is something quite poetic and non-understandable for a profane christian like the very idea that someone's soul could die is something that no christian could speak about even well of course if he's evangelist or prone to these kind of very high kind of sermons, of course, he could speak about these things, but not as normal protestant christians.
0: Uh, Like, in general, maybe I'm trying to find something to say about this uh, mortification, especially uh, so much because of my own background, which I said is like basically materialistic and, and how I see this mortification process and uh, a concept that is related to that. I guess it's Greek originally, this metanoia term meaning like a total change of mind, total shift, basically from my point of view, for example, from materialism to spiritual reality, like an actual full shift. And that that's why I, I, I see that this uh, mortification process is so important and maybe it's also our time that I see it like a requirement in a way for spiritual striving
1: Yeah, like the Gospel of John was mentioned briefly before and quite near the beginning of the said Gospel Jesus speaks with Nicodemus and says that those who are walking this spiritual path have to be born anew from above and I think the metanoia that is nowadays pretty much I think a Christian term has been taken from the Platonic Neoplatonic Greek because that thought that Neoplatonic thought was very much present when the Christian theology, dogmatism, was made 2000 or a little less than 2000 years ago. Uh, I think the metanoia or the getting past our small mind to nose or spirit or great gnosis is kind like a beacon or turning point or antithesis for the standard mortification in a way that in mortification we are seeking something that in metanoia happens like reversing the polarity of the bodily understanding
0: yeah speaking of that as well as like differing temperaments and differing methods being useful for different types of people One thing that is uh, an ever fascinating concept for me is this kind of white mortification. The idea that the same thing can be achieved and the same kind of first death or dying while alive can happen uh, via vivification or life, like the fullness of life. And going into that so deep that the whole thing kind of turns around.
1: If we think about what happens in nature, if the growing power in seed, a small plant, becomes intense, it will break through concrete and then the birth of that plant is the mortification of the concrete and there's nothing sad about it even though it's death.
0: And like from a human perspective, what happens in both or all these different ways of the same process happening is relying on spirit. And then what might seem to us to be like darkness, like a void or a vast space, why not, then is eventually what brings us to new new kind of life.
2: I think it's a good question. I don't think I have any semblance of answer. I know that at the moment, I really feel like I'm kind of in the middle of a dark night of a soul myself. So I'm interested to to think about what the next steps might look like, what I like to think that I'll be able to emerge out of this, like some kind of butterfly from some kind of horrible, dank cocoon. But I just I don't know what the next steps might look like in terms of that. I'd like to think about looking at other people and examples and to kind of see but at this point, I, I feel like in this dark night of the soul, I I've, I've felt mostly mad, like not not angry, well, angry too, but like virtually insane touches of insanity. And I think that at that point it's right now the struggle is to not go down the path of descent. It's making that conscious choice every day to try to ascend and and hope that you know I, I make it out the other side as as somebody who has the tools to continuously ascend more. Um, So any insight you have as to what that might look like post would be awesome. Um, Because right now it's pretty bleak, these these dark nights of the soul there, there's not a lot of of hope to be found.
1: Of course, there are always exceptions. But my strong belief is that as a culture, as a Western culture, global culture nowadays we are actually living through so so intensely hard and even we could say apocalyptic times in a way, that for people who are sympathetic, empathetic, subtle, uh, spiritual, it means a horrible horrible collective stress it means insane amounts of also uh, hard to deal with energetical stress and so we shouldn't be hard on ourselves that we are feeling bad all the time we don't have all the answers for ourselves or for humanity we are suffering spiritually, psychologically, bodily, emotionally, because it's a collective problem for our culture and it's extremely stressed right now. Of course there's always possibility for everyone subjectively to reach for the light, to uh, reach the point where this mortification becomes spiritual vivification and everything is white light, but I think it's thousand to one or or more that uh, it actually is about feeling the great suffering of humankind and the animal kingdom, likewise, and the whole planet. We are going through such a terrible time that in a way there has been no such time before and of course we will go go through it Uh, the humankind, the planet will live through it but so much will change the humanity has to change so much that we are actually collectively dying right now and feeling the death of the collective humanity in good and bad
0: Yeah, I don't feel like I'm in any position to Give any, any insights because I'm struggling with the same things probably very kind, different kinds than than you are but yeah I said the John of the cross speaks of like spiritual dryness like in the sense that you don't get any kind of gratification or any kind of joy from your work but you still do it uh, because of some kind of uh, what's the word in English like duty Mm -hmm. You do it because you have to and well that is work for you, (laughs) something you do because it has to be done but it's like personally very hard when I'm feeling very down for example.
1: It's a bit of a cliche to say that in the Kali Yuga or the Black Age uh, the process of spiritual development is fast but we can understand that when there is only the feeling of dharma, of doing what's right, and there is nothing good to be felt with it, or in those days, in those times where there is nothing to it, it is extremely quick to just choose the pure spirit with no gifts, nothing that you can actually gain with it, you just have to choose the doing what's right because it's right even though everything is black and you know for a fact that it doesn't help. Mm. We are in a way touching God's heart at those times, touching the very fabric of reality where there is only the energy, only the power and humanity has fragmented but luckily, of course, that's not the whole truth. There will always be good things, friends, and things that help at least partly to see the process as also something that helps other people. We have talked about things that are hard and perhaps repulsive in a way, but also the bright side of occult development and occult way of seeing things is that uh, the fear dies ultimately even if we think about possibilities like death of planetary life, death of humanity, death of animal kingdom like these extremely black, bleak possibilities as occultists who deal with the very abstraction of death and utter change, we come to see that in the end there is nothing to be afraid of. And I don't mean that we can rest assured that we will live on as spirits, but uh, more like that whatever comes Even if I would cease to exist as a body, as a soul, as a monadic spirit, as a occultist, I have come to understand that even such a void would be nothing that I would have to fear. There is like complete spiritual structure even in that utter void and in some way that is very hard to explain or put into words Uh, one starts to feel unity with that utter aspect that's beyond every kind of death and feel assured that there's nothing to be afraid of
2: well, I often think about how easy it would be to, um, you know, be a person that accepts an external source of redemption. You know, uh, like my mom is very Christian, and whenever you know she's like, "Oh, just lean on Jesus. Just lean on Jesus. Right? If you're sad, whatever. Just lean on Jesus." And I just can't be that kind of a person. But there are days that I really wish that I could, because there's this blissful ignorance not saying that my mom is ignorant, but it, it's like a willing ignorance, right? That mm. to, to kind of just accept that there's some outer redemption and there's a reason for all of it. But um, I think that what separates us as occultists is, is the, um, the want to kind of sit in what feels uncomfortable and what feels dark and what feels terrible. And like you said, continue to try rather than just leaning on external sources.
1: In that novel Zanoni I mentioned earlier there is this story about the magician aspirant who opens some kinds of clairvoyant abilities in himself too early with aid of some alchemical substances and suffers a terrible tragedy that he is still feeling as part of the world like not fully spiritual but a mundane person, but he's already seeing and hearing these spiritual things that are not fully a part of his life, and I think that's a tragedy of every occultist in a making, that we are beings not wholly in the physical world and not wholly in the spiritual world, but like outcasts from both worlds in a way that we can't close that door that those Christians have been able to keep shut when, when we have seen that, okay, it's not like this then you can try to tell yourself that I believe in Jesus and I lean on him but it will never be the same, you just can't unsee <laughs> the spiritual reality where there is no easy dichotomies, no easy dualism Easy evil Satan to blame and easy loving God to worship. Thank you for listening. More at the serpentandthestar.com.